Father, thank you for uh, Heritage Baptist Church. Thank you for this um, instantiation of the Holy of Holies. And we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, into this to be a part of this simple, um, to build one another up as living stones, to guard the door of the church by reading testimonies as a faithful Adam, and to um, faithfully but regrettably keep the back door of the church when when exhortation isn't heeded and excommunication is necessary. We ask that as we look at the new covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper this morning, that you would remind us of the um, the sobriety and the joy that ought to characterize us as members of the new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen. In our class this morning, we will consider the new covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let me get the timer going here. One second. All right. In our class this morning, we will consider the new covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper that were given to the new covenant institution of local churches. Baptism is the initiating one-time sign of the new covenant. It makes the one many by binding Christians together as a church, whereas the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign that makes the many one, constituting a gathering of Christians into an institution called a local church. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, We who are many are one body because, because we all partake of the one bread. That is, because we, the, the celebrating of the Lord's Supper effectively creates a church. It makes us a church. It is difficult to grasp the significance of covenant signs. In our correction of the Roman Catholic doctrine that teaches baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacramentally saving, we can easily overcorrect into viewing the covenant signs as bare symbols, which are negligible and not really necessary. Do baptism and the Lord's Supper save you? No. But, do, but they do ratify, inaugurate, and affect our, your full participation in the privileges of the new covenant and its responsibilities. To put this a different way, how and when are you saved? How? By faith. When? The moment you believe. How and when do you fully participate in the privileges and responsibilities of a local church, the institution the new covenant creates? When you repent, believe, are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and are baptized and thereby added to the membership of the local church. Remember the birth story of the church, Acts 2. They were baptized and then added to the number. And then you consistently cement and celebrate your covenant relationship to God and to the members of a local body through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Much, much more could be said about how the signs of the new covenant affect our full participation 
in the privileges and responsibilities of the new covenant, but one illustration will have to do. Consider the covenant of marriage and its corresponding covenant signs, the giving and wearing of rings, as well as consistent sexual intimacy. What if the pastor who officiated your wedding said in, your premar- in, in the premarital meetings, you know, rings and sexual intimacy are only covenant signs. They don't really make you married. Once you say, I do, and I pronounce you husband and wife, you can safely die married. You would think the pastor has lost his mind. We instinctively know that a man who doesn't wear a wedding ring is less than a faithful husband. We know that a married couple who never um, has sex and is not coming together consistently is not truly one flesh and isn't experiencing the full privileges of marriage and neither are they willing to take on the responsibilities of children that result from the enactment of this sign. The giving of a wedding ring, similar to baptism, is the initial sign of marriage, and sexual intimacy, like the Lord's Supper, is the ongoing sign of marriage. In both cases, the signs symbolize the realities of the covenant to which they belong, and they ratify, inaugurate, and affect one's full participation in the privileges and responsibilities of those covenants. In, in the... In the remainder of our time, I will trace the theme of baptism through the story of Scripture. In the story of Scripture, baptism doesn't just burst on the scene with the Baptist, that is, John the Baptist, who I like to refer to as John the Baptizer. Baptism begins at the beginning with the creation account and threads through the text of Scripture in the, in, to the new creation in Revelation. Throughout Scripture, when baptisms take place, Throughout scripture, baptisms take place in sacred spaces like the tabernacle, temple, or a place portrayed purposely as a tabernacle or temple. And they take place in preparation for priestly service. So baptisms take place in sacred spaces in preparation for priestly service. Um, In Exodus 29.1, We read, Now this is what you shall do to Aaron and his sons in order to consecrate them, that they may serve as priests. And after detailing specific sacrifices and other rituals, Moses says in verse 4, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that is a sacred space, and wash them with water. Wash is the Hebrew word mikvah, which which in Greek is which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is translated baptizo, which you can hear is our word, baptism. So the text effectively says, you, let's see, and baptize them um, with water. The thick thread of baptism used by God is used by God to weave three themes into an intricate tapestry. Those themes are judgment, New creation and priesthood. Baptism, in baptism, God prepares people for priestly service in God's temple by immersing them in the waters of judgment and emerging them as 
new creations consecrated for temple service. I'm going to briefly and briskly give you a tour of three sacred spaces where we will see a baptism in preparation for priestly service. Let me prepare you for, um, for the tour of these sacred spaces by pointing out a few features that we'll see in each one. Sacred spaces or temples or sanctuaries, using all those words interchangeably, in the ancient Near East, which is the world of the New Testament, commonly are on mountains because mountains are where the heavens and earth meet. And those sacred spaces are for God meeting with his people. So they're where heaven and earth converge. They're a nexus point. They, have, they all have a three-tiered structure, an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. And they're decorated in Eden imagery. That is the imagery of Eden. And they're places of priestly service. The first one we look at is the garden sanctuary of Genesis 1 and 2. Ezekiel describes Eden as a sanctuary. He says, you were, that is Israel, in Eden, the garden of God, the holy mountain of God. Yet you profaned the sanctuary. In Numbers 24, 5 to 7, Numbers 24, 5 to 7 also compares the tabernacle to Eden, therefore calling Eden a sanctuary. We know Eden was on a mountain because scripture says so, as we've just read. Eden was, has a three-tiered structure as well, the heavens and earth being the outer court, the garden being the holy place, and the garden, um, I'm sorry, the heavens and earth being the common space, the Garden being the holy place and the garden in Eden. Let me do it over. The outer court, Eden, and then the garden in Eden being the holy place. Because remember, it says the garden in Eden. And in the very center of that holy place is what? The tree of life. Which Dustin will have more to say about in a minute. So... Recall a bit of Eden imagery that later that the later tabernacle and temple portray. The lampstand in the temple was crafted to mimic the tree of life. Cherubim, which guarded the garden after Adam was exiled, are on the curtain right before you walk in the holy place, and they're around the mercy seat. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God Took, Genesis 2.15 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The same words are used as the, of the priestly temple service in Numbers 4. The priests are to um, work and keep the temple. Uh, but as we know, Adam failed in his priestly service. And Genesis 3.15 gives us the hope of a faithful priest to come. Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent when he came into the garden. When we were supposed to, the priests were supposed to keep the profane out of the garden. So Adam fell in his priestly service. So Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, leaves us looking for a faithful priest. So, but what about baptism? In Genesis 1.9-10, we read, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that he gathered 
together were called seas, and God saw that it was good. Here, the English, behind these English, the two uses of the word gathered are two different Hebrew words. One of those words is mikvah, the same word that we saw is used for baptism of, before the priests are able to serve in the temple. So why did, why did Moses use two different words for gathered? You tell me. So, and what we see is, while, while in a, a sinless sanctuary, Adam himself didn't need to be baptized, however, like the washing of the utensils in the temple before their consecration to holy use, the whole creation is baptized in preparation for Adam's service. Next, we'll take the t- tour of the decreation of the flood and the ark sanctuary. The decreation of the flood and the ark sanctuary in Genesis 6 to 9. Remember, we said that baptism weeps together three themes judgment, new creation, and preparation for priestly service. This is what we witness in the flood and its receding. God judges all creation with the waters of the flood. The waters that once were gathered together for the garden temple to emerge um, are now gathered back together in judgment, submerging the creation and its creatures, both man and beast. But decreation is not the end of the story. Salvation comes through judgment. New, new creation is birthed as the Ruach blows over the waters. Ruach can be translated as wind, breath, or spirit. The same word is used in Genesis 1-2 as the spirit hovers over the face of the deep. And as the Ruach, after the flood blows and the dry land begins to appear, uh, we were, we're reminded of Genesis 1. There are allusions parallel to each of the creation days we could point out, but we must hurry along. The ark and its survivors emerge on a mountain as a new creation birthed out of the waters of judgment. You know, the ark gets stuck on a mountain of Iraq. The ark itself like the later tabernacle and temple, is built according to the direct instructions of God. It is built in many similar ways to the tabernacle and temple. To point out just one, it is partitioned in three tiers, represented, reminiscent of all sacred spaces in Scripture. So we see a three-tiered separation or partition, just in the same way we see a common place, a holy place, and a most holy place. Um... From the New Testament, we know that, the, that this event, the flood, is a type of baptism. The Apostle Peter writes, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, it's the word for type, corresponds is the word for type, um, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Immediately after coming out of the waters of baptism, we see Noah serving like a new Adam in priestly service. Then Noah built an ark, or built an altar rather, to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he was pleased. Unfortunately, Noah follows in the footsteps and sin follows in the footsteps of his father Adam and, and sins with fruit, getting drunk. And like Adam, his nakedness has to be covered. But God is merciful and Noah is not the last priest. So next we see the Sinai sanctuary. This will be our last tour. Obviously, this one is on a mountain. It is a mountain. Scripture explicitly refers to Sinai, and moreover, Scripture explicitly refers to Sinai as a sanctuary. Exodus fifteen seventeen says, "You will bring them, that is Israel, in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established." We see the three-tiered partition as well. The people of Israel are around the common space at the bottom. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu are in the midsection, the holy place, and they eat there with God in a type of Lord's Supper. And the most holy place, only Moses is allowed to go. In Exodus 24.2, we read, let Moses come near. But what about baptism? 1 Corinthians 10 refers to the Red Sea crossing as a baptism. Paul tells us, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea and are baptized and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. While these were waters of life for the Israelites, they were waters of judgment for Pharaoh and his men. After Israel's baptism, we read in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 of their priesthood. So they were baptized and prepared for priesthood. Exodus 9, 5 and 6 read, Now, therefore, if you, are indeed, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then... They served Yahweh on the mountain sanctuary, is what Moses had been telling Pharaoh they were going to do in the first place. But as we know, Israel's priestly service didn't remain pure. Before they leave this mountain sanctuary, they have terribly transgressed and engaged in idol worship and other forms of idolatry. So we are left looking for a faithful priest. And it's into this story that Jesus comes. Jesus' baptism in sacred space in the wilderness. Matthew is steeped in the Old Testament and shows that Jesus is the long-awaited faithful priest promised in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is portrayed in overlapping and interlocking themes as the last Adam, the better Moses, and the faithful Israel. And remember, we see temples in all those places, in the garden, um, through in Israel, and um, and Moses' little basket is portrayed as an ark, but that's for another day. As God's faithful son, the true Israel, Herod tries to kill Jesus as a baby, as Pharaoh does Israel. Like, like God calls his son out of Egypt, Matthew tells us in chapter 2, um, he applies that verse to Jesus and says, this, this happened to fulfill, out of Egypt I called my son. As a new Adam, Jesus is tempted 
by Satan, yet unlike Adam, Jesus withstands. The most difficult aspect of Jesus' baptism is the sacred space aspect. We are told that, he's, that John was baptizing in the wilderness. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is in a pre-Edenic chaos, a pre-Eden chaos. In Genesis 1 and 1, 2, we read, The earth was without form, that is tohu, and void, babohu. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face. In Deuteronomy 32, 10 and 11, we have those same words, tohu and vavohu, and it reads, God found him, that is Israel, in a desert land, in a howling wilderness. And then it says that like an eagle, the Lord um, stirs over his nest. He hovers over the face of the deep. So the wilderness is... Uh, pre uh, portrayed as a pre-Eden. So Jesus, the faithful son, goes down into the baptismal waters of judgment, prefiguring his judgment on the cross, which he also calls a baptism. And directly after his baptism, um, in Matthew 4, we read, Jesus begins his ministry. So Jesus' baptism was in preparation for his priestly ministry. I'm almost finished. Um, we, brothers and sisters, are also baptized in a sacred space. If the earth is the common space, and we, as temples of the Holy Spirit, are holy places wherever we are, and when we gather together, we're the most holy place, because we're told in Revelation that Jesus walks among his lampstands, which are representative of all true churches. And it is in the, this space which we are baptized for our priestly service um, of our of our high priest, namely um, Jesus. Remember in Romans 6, we're told that baptism represents our union with Christ. And it's baptism that prepares us for the privileges and responsibilities of the new covenant. We get the, privi we get the privilege of eating the bread in the, in the presence of the ascended Christ in the Lord's Supper, just as the uh, priest ate the bread of the presence in the temple. And like Adam... It is our job to work and keep the garden temple in the presence of Yahweh. Like Adam, it is our job to work and keep the garden temple, the church. We build up the temple by building up our brothers and sisters as living stones, and we guard the temple from the profane as those who wield the keys of the kingdom, guarding the entrance by reading testimonies and tending the back door of the church through discipline and excommunication when exhortation is not heeded. Baptism, as a sign, prepares us for priestly service. And Dustin is going to now tell us the story of the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing sign celebrated by the baptized. Okay, <clears throat> rewinding back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, in this garden... We see Adam and Eve, who are God's covenant creatures, feasting from this tree of life <clears throat> in the presence of Yahweh. And this tree represents Yahweh's own life made available to his children. And like all other covenant-making meals, this meal was a demonstration of the fellowship between Yahweh and his people. And I should also point out that because of the sin that was committed in Genesis 3, sacrifice is necessary for us to have fellowship with Yahweh. So not just 
a covenant feast, but now a sacrifice going forward. And this sacrifice and feast can be seen in the Passover in Exodus 12 when the unblemished lamb's blood was spilled in order to save God's people from death. And what did they do with the lamb's body? They ate it. And this covenant meal between Yahweh's people and him serves as a reaffirmation that Yahweh is their God and they are his people. As the people of Israel celebrated the Passover year by year, they began to realize that what this meal pictured was unfulfilled, especially after the moral decay caused by a neglect of God's statutes that eventually led to their exile. So we see that the Passover didn't fix their sin problem. Otherwise, this repetition of sacrifice wouldn't have been necessary. And since the Passover, we see Yahweh's people waiting for the true Passover. In Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, it reads, On this mountain, Yahweh will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him, and let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And we see very similar realities in this New Testament covenant meal. So like the Old Testament meals, the Lord's Supper, which is the New Testament covenant meal, is a meal in which we experience covenant fellowship promised in the scriptural refrain, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's also a visual reminder that sacrifice is necessary. And the bread and the fruit of the vine, they picture Christ's flesh in which he offered in faithful obedience to his father on our behalf and his blood, which was poured out to take the punishment we deserve. So we don't only look at the meal, we must eat. And our eating reminds us that each one of us must trust Christ's real obedience and death for our real sins. And also like the Old Testament covenant meal, the Lord's Supper constitutes us as a church. And Paul said this to the local church at Corinth. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So it's because we, as an HBC family, take the Lord's Supper, we are members of one body. We are a local church. And a relationship is created between me and the members of this church. And there's a certain unity between me and John or me and Jim that I don't have with members at Pleasant Valley or Grace Reformed. So we have this special unity when we're baptized into this church. So as Derek pointed out, baptism is a one-time event 
that serves as our initiation into this covenant community. It's the front door through which we become members of this church family. And by contrast, the Lord's Supper is the repeated renewal of our covenant with the Lord and to one another. This is why when we are told to discern the body, we, are not, only, we not only concern ourselves with our relationship with God, ensuring that we have repented of sins committed against him, but we also concern ourselves with our relationships with one another. This unworthy manner in which members of the church at Corinth ate was not only characterized by <laughs> vertical sin against God, but also, and perhaps more so, horizontal sin against one another. And here we're reminded of the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So when we sit around tables and eat a covenant meal as a church family, we experience our corporate union with Christ and our covenant union with each other. And also, like the, old, like the covenant meals of the Old Testament, the Lord's Supper points beyond itself. Celebrating this Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the celestial celebration to come. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are not only engaging in fellowship with the triune God, but we are waiting for a future day in which Christ comes to redeem us. The day will bring about the promise of, I will be your God and you will be my people, as that phrase is mentioned one last time in Revelation 21.3, which says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And I would be remiss if I didn't tack on verse 4, which says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So this verse is also the fulfillment of our waiting for Yahweh as prophesied in Isaiah 25, 6-9, which I had just read. So we take the Lord's Supper to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We eat with each other and anticipate, in anticipation of the day we get to eat with Yahweh himself. So when all things are made new, Revelation 2.7 tells us, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So just as we began with Adam and Eve feasting on this tree of life in the garden, we end with God's people feasting on the tree in the garden once again. So how can we as a church family apply this? Well, celebrating the Lord's Supper is one way we grow in assurance in our salvation. So because we sit at the table and partake of the covenant meal together, we're reminded that we are members of, of this church. The people around this table, they know us. They know our testimonies. And by eating with us, they are affirming that we are a brother and sister in Christ. And yet, the enemy uses this very meal 
to plague some of you with doubt. If you have been received into the membership of this church through baptism, and you can say from the depths of your soul, my only hope in life and death is my Lord Jesus, then fellow HBC member, sit at the table where you belong and eat in faith, looking forward or looking toward and longing for the day when repentance will no longer need to be repeated and faith finally focuses and becomes sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this institution of the Lord's Supper uh, that you have so graciously uh, allowed us to, to partake in. Uh, when we partake, uh, help us remember that we are members of your body and that we have assurance that we will one day be in glory with you. Uh, we also ask that you, you help us, you help remind us that this Lord's Supper is not about how we feel on any given day, but it's because that we have been baptized into your family. So, so bless us as we go through this day and help us remain unified just as you has, had, had intended. In Christ's name, amen. amen.